0: This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders, with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland.
1: What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. I have no clue what episode we're on, but that's
2: fine. What's up, Colin? What's going on, Jake? Oh, not much. Do we have any good news before we hop into the show? I don't know about any good news, but I mean, things are going good. We got Nate this week. So by the time this episode's out, that'll be past. So it's going to be a busy week for us. I got a review that I can go ahead and, and read. Cool. Kind of short list for the news today. This is from Brandon Glenn. He said, I love the podcast. I saw your YouTube video and you mentioned posting some content about the well work over in Oklahoma. I'm interested in learning more about where I could view those videos. So if you haven't already... You can go find us on YouTube or Facebook. Our handle on both of those platforms is Digital Wildcatters. And if you go on YouTube, actually Facebook, both, they have content libraries. And so you can go in, I think when we were doing our Well workover vlog, that was like episode three or two. So you just go back, scroll back. Just and go find watch it. them all. They're not very long. Yeah, they're not long. They're all seven to 10 minutes long. So And make sure to subscribe to us. We're trying to claw our, claw our way up. So. <laughs>
1: Well, you guys have been fantastic. We've grown at least a thousand unique listeners week over week for the past two to three weeks. So we're closing in on eight thousand unique people like you. So thank you guys so much for supporting the show. If you love what we're doing, please leave a review. That helps us with the algorithm for Apple, Spotify, Google Play, that kind of stuff. I think that's it.
2: Yeah, cool. What, what we got today, man? What we doing?
1: So we've got with us Alex Robart, CEO of Ambient. What's going on, man? How you doing? Pretty good. Thanks for joining us. So you're in from, uh, you said Calgary, right?
0: Well, I just relocated from Calgary where I'd been full-time for the last year and a half. Just relocated back down to Houston. Now, splitting my time, you know, weekdays every other week, basically, up in Calgary. It's a little bit of a weather difference, isn't it? (laughs)
1: Last
0: Monday, I ran a couple miles in Houston in the morning at 5 or 6 a.m. before I hopped on a plane. It was 70-ish degrees and
1: humid and disgusting flew up to Calgary
0: and it 20. <laughs> so almost a hundred degree flip and
1: a little a little challenging. So do you guys have an office in Calgary or is it more just like your family's there?
0: No, no, no. My, my wife relocated down okay. back here to Houston okay. over the last month, uh, six weeks now. But the company heritage is in Calgary. It's actually a long, rather complex, ambient backstory, but originally founded in 2004 out of Calgary under the really the foundational thesis that there's better physics that could be applied to optimize oil wells. Okay. So the original CEO of that business was a really phenomenally talented engineering mathematician. And they spent the first, him and a mathematician, CTO partner spent the first year and a half just building fancy physics. And then had to, to build an, a really unique automation package to actually deliver that package of physics to the well. And that automation package sort of looks more like an IOT implementation than it did a more traditional automation package. And so they actually took, effectively, a more traditional-looking PLC, programmable Logic Controller, and combined it with the Linux box to run the high-powered compute at the well site, sampling data at five millisecond intervals to really bring this. It's a, it's a 3D version of the waveform equations, a 3D solution, which is more effective in horizontal wells. And Canada was a little, a little earlier on moving more activity toward horizontal in the early and mid-2000s. And so those are some unique problems they were looking to solve for. And so that's that's sort of the initial beginnings of where Canada started. So that business had always been up there under the name Pumpwell Solutions. And then the business started to pivot in the 2012 timeframe towards what's become ambient. And so my brother and I stepped into business in 2016, recapitalized it, some of our own capital and built a broader investor syndicate around us. And we closed a big round of financing a, a Series A in July of 17, with the syndicate of investors that included us under our entity called Unconventional Capital, Mercury Fund out of Houston. The two of us are sort of the co leads on the deal. And then GE Ventures, Equinor Technology Ventures, formerly stud Oil, and then Cottonwood Venture Partners, who's a newish oil field, data and software focused fund out of Houston.
1: A couple guys who are just phenomenal. Yeah, they're and, great and guys. Nice to work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. So I've already got a million questions. So before <laughs> we hop into all the nuts and bolts, Let's kind of dive a little bit more. I mean, you alluded to it a little bit with unconventional capital and stuff. Let's take it before that. Sure. Where did, where did you, I know you mentioned that you you got your start kind of in consulting. Is that right? Yeah. So my brother and I were both
0: consultants out of a school, a university, for the better part of the, that four years between undergraduate and business school. And that's actually how we sort of fell into oil and gas as my twin. So identical twin brother and business partner. We've been working together now for 12 years. Had its challenges the first couple of years.
1: <laughs> Do you feel like you guys are just so alike in a lot of things, or are you just buttheads?
2: You know, we're
0: we're similar. I mean, you know, Rocio,
1: who's my marketing director next to me here, could probably
0: have some perspectives on how similar or dissimilar we are. <laughs> we're, we're similar. On the spectrum of people, we're quite similar. But we have very clear differences, you know, some personality differences, different strengths and weaknesses. But You know, when you work with a sibling, there's a lot of kind of resetting how you engage and interact in the professional context. Learning patience was the key for us. So fortunately my mom was a social worker growing up. And so we were pretty good about being able to step back when conflict was <laughs> erupting over and over again that first couple of years and you know, having a bit of an intervention and kind of resetting our our expectations and how we engage with each other. So at this point it works phenomenally. As you guys know, you know, being a solo entrepreneur is really hard. It's a lonely road. And so mm-hmm. having a partner you can work with, you know, go through that emotional challenging journey is is really important and Having an identical twin brother, who who's, you know, intimate trust is always there and is never going to to
2: go away. It's really been a built-in advantage for us. Absolutely, yeah. I can see that being a challenge. Yeah, you know, it's already you already have the complications that come in. You know, being spouses and butting heads, and then once you go into business together, you know, it can be taxing on yeah. a on a relationship. So you kind of have to reset and figure out, okay, how do we move forward in in a business relationship as well? Yeah, so. and you know, not hold grudges and
0: put the past. You know, Chris and I. Every once in a while, we'll still bicker about something, but you know, within 20 seconds after we move on, like it's it's in the past. It's good. We're moving forward, and that's awesome. Others don't always interpret the situation as as it is, but uh, it's our process, and actually works quite well for us. So, what were you guys consulting on? We were both kind of traditional management or strategy consultants at Booz, doing a range of work from a lot of automotive in Detroit, actually, with the restructuring Delphi, GM. At Boeing in Seattle, Coca-Cola in Atlanta, some work internationally in Egypt for a few months with the Minister of Finance. And so kind of all over the place. And Chris was doing more economic consulting work, mostly focused on, on energy midstream and electricity transmission work. And then he moved to the Middle East to Bahrain and Saudi Arabia for about a year and working with more of a strategy consulting group who was doing a bunch of work with Aramco, with Aramco Special Projects Group. Oramco is really the primary source of managerial talent across Saudi Arabia. And so any high-profile project, by some prince is typically it's handed to Oramco to run. And so he was running a bunch of projects, those folks. One was an industrial diversification project. Another was actually a higher education strategy for the country of Saudi Arabia. And so kind of all over the, all over the board. And during his time there, we met an individual who he spent you know, two months in a conference room working with, who ended up being our future business partner in one of our really our first company in oil and gas and uh, that was a market research and data and consulting shop. And that was called PacWest Consulting Partners. We built that up over the course of, we kind of sort of pivoted that business a little bit to launch the research and data business to complement just a few guys doing some consulting work. We sort of reconstituted it with just the three of us, Chris and I, plus that third partner Nilesh, who was sort of the original founder of that business. And you know, we built out the research and data practice then kept on growing the consulting practice. And they're really complementary businesses and mm-hmm. sort of a proven model for for strategy consultants who don't have any real skills per se to take that that skill set, that analysis skill set into a market research like corporate executive board, advisory board out of DC, notable firms built by ex-McKinsey consultants actually, which have been quite successful. And so we built that business for the next four years from there and sold it to IHS in November of 2014, just about a week before oil price crashed. Oh, wow. (laughs) Great timing. Impeccable timing. timing, Everything in this business. (laughs) Uh, Definitely. And we we ran a clean process, did it quickly, and didn't get greedy and played in our favor. Awesome.
2: So at that point, once you guys exited out of that business, did you take take the earnings from that acquisition and start Unconventional Capital? Is that how you bridged over? Correct. So we both did a little bit of time with IHS
0: uh, after the acquisition, a little under a year each, you know, integration, taking care of our people, you know, helping that transition process and then stepped away. Took some time off. I took a little sabbatical for a few months, lived in Amsterdam, traveled Europe for the better part of four months and very cool. You know, recharged the batteries with a lot of books. And Chris got married, did all that fun stuff. And then we, we got back to the market in I guess it was fall of twenty sixteen, fall of fifteen maybe.
1: During that time, did you feel like you had any like like almost like this existential crisis, Like you'd built something and you had sold it off. We'd experienced something low key recently to where it's like kind of like back to the drawing board like what do we what do we do next? Yeah. Right. I'd had many entrepreneurs tell me ahead of time that it's a
0: very uniquely emotional process selling your first company, but you know, nothing anyone explains to you can prepare you for it. And that was absolutely the case for me. And so it was a very strange emotional process and took me a little bit of time to kind of recognize it and like begin to actually kind of disconnect from it, emotionally disengage from it. But I, I also had a very unique set of circumstances Right before we closed the transaction with IHS, I actually was in India. I lived in India previously, Did some consulting work out there in, in Delhi, India, uh, working with Cairn Energy, India, out of Gurgaon from uh, 2009 to 2010. Chris was out there as well for the better part of a year. I would go back regularly because I don't know if you guys are familiar with Gwar. Guar is, is a bean, which is a, a really effective thickening agent, which is really the primary gelling agent input into hydraulic factoring chemistry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any any gelled or cross linked job, it's guar, which is the thickening agent, the gelling agent that's used in those jobs. Okay. And the vast majority of guar comes from India, primarily from Rajasthan and Haryana, India. And so when guar started becoming a supply chain constraint in the world of frac, as frac activity transitioned from gas to oil, and therefore frac chemistry was shifting to the gelled cross linked formulas. Guar demand spiked. Long story short, I became kind of the guar market expert and having lived in <laughs> India previously, it was easy for us to go out there and leverage our relationships to go really dig into things on behalf of some clients. And I would go back periodically, but I was in India, October 14, just for a quickie, in and out, being the keynote speaker at the Inno Guar conference, and I picked up typhoid fever. And my Jeez. doctors here in the States misdiagnosed me for about two months. By the time I was you know, in the hospital, collapsing, right after we closed the transaction with IHS. So Wow. I was a whole complex recovery process for a few months to kind of get back into it. But it actually, in hindsight, it sort of helped me recognize there's more to life than this company and kind of begin that emotional journey to disconnect. So it actually sort of, in hindsight, it sort of helped, I think. But it was uh, rather, it sort of took away from the
2: fun of my first exit in, in some capacity. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. You know, it kind of puts a damper on, on an exciting time. It when It did getting...
0: put a damper, particularly since that was, you know, my brother and I knew from age 13, we wanted to be entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And so it was always working towards that first exit yeah and so you know you built that up in your mind for a long
2: time and yes it did sort of take away from the moment yeah but that is a really interesting perspective you look back on it in hindsight and it almost kind of disconnected you from the emotions of the deal because obviously you know you're you're fighting for your life you're in the hospital sick and you know that kind of shows you on the the, what's important yeah what's important in life and so that that's really interesting that's exactly right so well I'm glad, I'm glad you got through that, that period of but, life of unscathed. <laughs> but to your question,
0: I'm not a conventional capital, so, so yes. Yeah, so, We also had another company in parallel to PacWest called Digital h 2 We put that together with a couple of entrepreneurs, Piers Wells in particular, who's now VP of sales at Arundo. You guys probably know Arundo mm-hmm. here in town. And so that was sort of our concept we conceived of and put together, and then we handed it to Piers and said, Piers, we're working 80, 90, 100 hour weeks here at PacWest. We can't build this company hands-on because we're already working too much over here so we'll incubate you invest in you and we've got another guy we think could be a great partner for you and so they Piers, stepped in and built that business with another gentleman named brandon and had some successes there and ended up getting acquired by genscape in april of 2015 okay so you know those two combined you know post ihs post sabbatical you know we we stepped back to houston chris and i both Knowing that we wanted to do something in digital oilfield, we saw all the trends out that that you guys and everyone else sees now. Mm-hmm. We saw those trends just beginning to emerge, and you know, having that digital H2O experience, which is very much a it was a data analytics software platform for oilfield water, oilfield fluids. We knew that we wanted to focus on on digital as our kind of next opportunity step. We weren't quite sure how we want to play that opportunity. We want to be investors. We want to be operators. We want to you know, work with the private equity fund to, to back us, to, to acquire a bunch of companies and put them together. And so mm-hmm. we are kind of open to all those paths. Small conventional capital is really our, our tool to sort of get out there and get back in the market, really dive in and build a network. And you know, we, we made a handful of investments in mostly seed stage, oil field tech companies. So a couple of notable ones, uh, WaterLens, which is an oilfield water quality testing hardware and software solution. Their technology is applicable to, beyond oil field for sure, but they've started in oil and gas and they've gotten some good recognition. We're on the cover of JPT a couple of years ago and, you know, having really good success, kind of moving that business forward. And then Corva, a drilling analytics company out of here in Austin. We put money to them quite early as well and worked pretty close with Ryan, the CEO, and they've been really successful. So we're quite excited about what they've, what they've built, uh, which is a really compelling, truly real-time drilling analytics platform. And what we saw at that time was we saw a all of the the incumbent drilling analytics, you know, in quotes, analytics solutions out there were really just kind of a you know, data feed visualization solutions with a human who watches that screen and raises the flag when they saw a problem and that's not analytics, right? That's uh, quite the overstatement. <laughs> but so everyone, you know, Schlumberger, Baker, NOV, they all had the same solution. Yeah. And what Ryan had built in Corva, at least back then, you know, 3 years ago, was truly real time. He built. He comes from more of a consumer tech world, and he built a truly real time data infrastructure to process not just that real time data, but also run the, the physics based models like a torque and drag model, stick slip model, to actually reprocess those models on the fly every three seconds as that data feed came in, and no one out there had that period and so now he's you know dramatically added to that product on amazing things stood up operation centers and is really it was like really killing it. And so Core was one of the other ones we were pretty excited about but we knew we'd wanted to focus on production for our full-time play. We as we as we advanced in the process made investments we realized that we're really more operators than we are investors. We're not really patient. We're not really excited <laughs> about sitting on the board and influencing and kind of asking hard questions. We're really more interested in being in there and getting our hands dirty. And so we came across Ambient in the middle of 2016 and they had they were the first company we found in production who had built really a data infrastructure and a technology infrastructure from scratch, a truly an edge and IoT infrastructure. And out of all the companies in production, they had the most advanced technology stack out there. And so we were quite impressed by that. Companies still up in Canada, they were just beginning to think about getting to the US market, which is, you know, almost 10x the size of the Canadian market. Mm-hmm. And like many Canadian technology companies, a lot of them struggle to make it into the big scary US market. And so it's, you know, as you guys know, it's a the U.S. market's a diverse, complex market. It's very regionalized. Mm -hmm. Uh, Different customers, different regions, you know, operate differently. And so it is really hard for the the Canadian technology companies to make their way into the U.S. market. And so they needed a solution there. They needed, you know, a better commercial strategy. And they needed needed capital. And they were kind of struggling to put all those pieces together. And so Chris and I stepped in and, you know, through a long, complex negotiation with the legacy capital sponsor who had been in the business since 2004 – which is sort of an odd hybrid of a family office and private equity fund, but very successful in big energy infrastructure deals over the years. You know, heavy CapEx, heavy engineering type deals, gas processing infrastructure, offshore drilling platforms, seismic both offshore and onshore. Uh, their big deal now is the Northwest Refinery is their project, their first green photo refinery in Alberta and I think about 40 years near Edmonton. And so we partnered with those guys to
2: kind of step in and also a key part of the deal is we had to step in and take over operational control. Mm-hmm. So were you guys, did you guys, when you came across Ambient, Like, were you on the hunt, let's say, hey, let's find let's find a technology, a startup or a company that kind of fits these parameters that we can work ourselves in as the operators and take over? Or did you just happen to come across Ambient, you know, in due diligence process from an investment standpoint and say, hey, this looks like a company that we could provide more value to than just invest in capital? Yeah, by that time, we were sort of on the hunt. We played with the idea of being investors, but, you know,
0: we ultimately decided that we don't have the patience for investing, mm-hmm. you know, much more hands-on. And so we were we are looking for the right opportunity in production, the right company with the right technology, going out the right opportunity. And Ambient was, was perfect in a lot of ways. And so we went through a diligence process, you know, as an investor, kind of thinking through the ups and the downs and, you know, where we, could we take this company and then from there went through a very complex structuring process. And you know, one of the biggest challenges is that while Ambit as a, a company or an entity, it had all these great assets it brought to the table because it had this history. We had this really unique high-resolution data set that today no one still has data of that quality or volume and these uh, these lift applications and anyone else, any company, any EMP, any competitor out there. And so that was a major foundational asset. Plus, some, some of our proprietary patented physics, which is still the best package of physics out there for horizontal wells, and a couple of things as well. But it also brought with it this, this kind of history and legacy of kind of company structure. And that created a, a more complex transaction process to actually go to market to raise money for the company. Because as we discovered throughout the process, we knew a lot of the private equity guys in Houston doing elephant services deals for, for Latias Greece to serve them with consulting work, doing due diligence on their transactions. But And so we were comfortable with. Private equity guys comfort with, hey, we get with this. There's some restructuring work to do here. No problem. That's what we do. But in the venture community, venture folks don't like to take risks on structure. They're taking all these other risks on technology, on team, on customer. And so the one thing they don't want to take risk on is structuring stuff. And so trying to walk the line to to massage the structure of the deal into more of a of a clean slate kind of Series A deal was, you know, one of the challenges that we had. But you know, all the other compelling aspects of the deal, the data they had on hand, what they'd built so far, the general themes that they're going after, you know, were certainly more than enough for us to overcome that, mm-hmm. that set of hurdles. But and so we stepped in, you know, agreed to a transaction structure, brought in Mercury Fund alongside of us as the co-lead. And from there, myself and Adrian, who's our, our partner from, from Mercury, worked really hand in hand to then build the broader investor syndicate and get GE to the table. Get Equinor on board, and then ultimately the Cottonwood guys in as well. So that was a it was a rather complex, probably
2: nine-month process end to end. Okay. Yeah, for any of our listeners that don't know, I mean, Mercury Fund's one of the more well-known funds in, in venture capital here in oil and gas. And then Equinor's got a great corporate VC group, too. We're really good friends with Medi over there. I think that's actually... Saw a press release. I don't know what was it, maybe four months back from you guys in Equinor about deploying ambient technology on some of their assets. And that's one of the benefits when you get backed by an Equinor is that you know that's that's actually one of their criteria is that the technology has to be yeah. able to be utilized within their company. So
0: and we've been we've been really terribly impressed by the the Equinor team. Yeah, so so we initially came in through Medi, who we had a relationship with from before, and then Abhijit has been on board, although he's so busy with so many other companies now. He stepped away and another one of the, the folks, uh, Bora has stepped in, is, is mm-hmm. on board now. But I was out in Norway for my first time visiting the Equinor folks at a big technology showcase back in November, my first time out in Norway visiting kind of a corporate Equinor and was really quite impressed by, you know, how innovative they've been in a lot of ways, but also by the broader culture and leadership there, encouraging folks to take risk on new technologies, you know, mm-hmm. be thoughtful, build consensus, de-risk it, but ultimately you're still taking a risk. And that is a company culture that does encourage folks to, to try new things, to drive change, in a way that a lot of EMP company cultures do not.
2: Exactly. I mean, I think that's why we like Equinor so much and the team over there, because they are very innovative and forward-thinking. I mean, look, they're, they're the ones even here in Houston. You know, Rebecca Hoffman from Equinor taking the lead on the blockchain consortium that she's put in place. So, I mean, they're always doing things like that to kind of lay the foundation and in infrastructure. And I think they're actually a really big driver in the oil and gas tech startup space, because you know, like I said, some of the, the other major companies they're they're not taking that initiative, and it's not the. I think it's kind of a company culture thing. So. Yeah, it's definitely cultural,
0: and you know, the team they put together here in Houston, the Ventures team has been great. Abajit's great, Medi's great, Abora's great. So we've been we've been really happy with with that. And, and to your point, you know, they were also quite helpful as we went through our our pilot implementation process with Equinor. You know, the business, the operating business. To deploy our technologies, I mean, we we obviously had to go through a complex process to to prove up the technology, prove the value, and build a business case with the with the engineering team. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, on the back of that, in the support from from ventures, we were able to build a really compelling business case with you know, really four day paybacks on what we're doing. So a pretty compelling business case. So from there, we've deployed across the entire lock in asset to all the relevant wells.
2: Very cool. So where is the technology at today? I don't think we've really got into that. So, you know, we've got all our buzzwords and not just oil and gas, but in the tech space when it comes to machine learning and artificial intelligence. So anytime that you have one of those buzzwords come up, you know, ambient comes up in the conversation. So let's talk about where you guys are at with today's technology compared to where you were in the, the early days.
0: So when we stepped in in 16, they'd built, you know, a reasonably mature, we'll call it edge and IOT infrastructure. That's an edge, a piece of edge hardware combined with all the the comms baked into that piece of edge hardware and the the software infrastructure move that data back and forth and present it to customers. And that was that's phenomenal. It's it's important, but it's really more kind of plumbing than it is sort of the application that drives the workflows and the value for customers. And so we spent the last, you know, really two years building the deep AI application that that resides on top of that edge and IoT infrastructure. And so, you know, we're, we're focused on production. So, you know, artificial lift is the core of production. So we're an artificial lift automation, optimization, and advanced analytics play. Also, you know, advancing over time to serve the entire producing well pad and all the production equipment out there. But, you know, what we do is we use our edge hardware and it combined with our IoT infrastructure to deliver these deep applications that serves the different lift types out there. We've got a, a heritage as a company in rod pump with a really unique data set there and have some really deep expertise in serving that particular lift type, which is roughly half the North American installed base. Okay. But over the last you know, six months, we've started working with customers to begin to move beyond our rod pump, kind of really strong depth there, but also taking other lift types. And so we're, we're working right now on with a handful of notable customers on building applications to serve a couple of the lift types here, which we're super excited about. And, you know, the aspiration here is to be a full life of well solution to serve all customers lift types, because that's important to a lot of customers who obviously don't have just one lift type in most of their fields.
2: Mm-hmm. So what kind of data points are you guys taking? And I'm sure you have a bunch of them. But I mean, anytime you're talking about, you know, you got the IOT aspect where you're taking in all this information, but then you're running the machine learning and analytics on top of that and it takes a bunch of data points. So sure. what all are you guys capturing? So we're capturing at high resolution, so you know up to five second resolution,
0: which is order of magnitude higher resolution than how all these other kind of legacy industrial automation systems operate at. And when you look at some of these systems at, at that resolution versus more traditionally like five seconds or fifteen minutes or an hour, it's night and day. And so you can see a lot more and apply actually apply big data. And so it, it depends on the lift type, and the the well configuration even within each different lift type. But let's let's talk rod pump. And in the rod pump context, if we're on a simple kind of low-value stripper well with that's traditionally been run just with an electric motor and a, and a mechanical timer to run that system and drive a simple kind of up-down schedule, we implement and integrate with the motor. And so we're taking current that we transform to torque, and we treat that, that uh, current data stream as, think of it like a high-resolution high load cell, because we're looking at it five milliseconds, and we can see a lot in the patterns in that torque data that allow us to, to effectively apply a complex data model to infer what's going on downhole because we've got all this massive data lake of more centered data on these same applications that allows us to effectively interpolate and understand what's going on downhole based on the data we have in house. But if we're on a well with more traditional automation that we, we augment, and we're taking load and position data along with motor and current data, and casing and tubing data, pressure data if they have it, and we put all that together, and so we're using that data at high resolution to deliver in a more advanced control We're effectively delivering augmented autonomous control. And so what we can do is we've got data models that allow us to autonomously optimize and control wells. And so we have a machine learning algorithm that runs both at the edge and the cloud that classifies on an ongoing basis, day in, day out, each of these wells into the operating state. Is it is it over-pumping, under-pumping, or dialed in or optimized. And what we find is that only 10 to 20% of wells out there that we've ever been on, you know, this is now thousands of wells that we're active on, only 10 to 20% are actually optimized. So mm-hmm. that's a lot of value being left on the table. For sure. And so what we can do for wells that are over pumping, running too fast, where they're consuming extra electricity to run the system too fast, they're adding extra strokes that add extra wear into the system and pull forward that failure cycle. We autonomously slow that well down and we don't take up kind of a big bang, let's get it perfect with one go. We're taking a very incremental step-by-step approach, and over the course of six to eight weeks, we incrementally change those systems and get them dialed in. On the flip side, for a while it's under-pumping, running too slow, or leaving product in the ground and not producing up the potential of that reservoir, that well bore, we speed the system up step-by-step using that same autonomous machine algorithm and get that well dialed in, get production up. And so in the case of the equinor project in the Bakken, you know, we actually increased on the over on the overpumping wells we reduced electricity consumption and strokes and failures by about 10% plus wow. and then on the underpumping wells which is about 10 to 15% of the population that we were on we increased production by 33% you net that out across the entire population that we worked on of that 50 wells we were piloting on that's actually a 6% production increase across that entire population of wells and so you put it all together the value prop there was a four-day payback, so really, really compelling. Wow. So the question is, why don't you deploy this across your entire field immediately? at that Yeah. Time, right. <laughs> For You're sure. Leaving value on the
2: table. Yeah. So one thing that you said that kind of got my mind running. So you said that obviously you guys are deployed out on Equinor's assets, but you also said, you were talking about you know a small stripper well, you know that's running off a mechanical timer and that kind of, you know. Gets was, my gets my mind running because guess what? I got, I got yeah, I got small stripper wells that run off mechanical timer. So is y'all's technology is it scalable to where these small independent operators can deploy it on their assets, or is it only, you know, for the big, big assets and bigger operators? No, it's for for both horizontal and vertical
0: wells. And okay.
2: that was part of the fundamental thesis here in the whole company
0: was that we've changed the game from a cost perspective to implement SCADA, you know, traditional automation on a more mature Vertical well, the business case, the economics fundamentally do not work. You've got to be early in the production decline curve to make that business case work to implement automation. So once you're more mature well, you can't make that business case work. But with our solution, it costs a lot less. It's a lot lower implementation hassle. You don't need an in-house automation team. That TCO is dramatically different, and so our business case works to pay back, even on the lowest of low-value stripper wells. You know, two barrel per day wells or less. We can pay back a deployment in under six months. Wow. And so so yes, it's for all producers. And our biggest our biggest battle is change. Are folks comfortable changing their process, being more reliant on data, being more reliant on a machine telling them things? To reduce well site visits yeah. and spend less time traveling to that well site. I mean, you guys yeah. are having to travel up to Oklahoma, I believe it is. Yep, yep. all the uh, way, all the way to Pawnee County. That's probably this, of, probably this weekend. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of time and energy For and sure. cost to do that. For sure, it's obviously a different equation if someone's got a team who's you know r- local there. Mm-hmm. But you know, we could deploy on top of your wells very quickly and easily, and increase production, reduce failures, reduce downtime, and let you see that system remotely and accept recommendations or flip that to an autonomous operating mode where that system is going to manage and optimize itself.
2: So do you guys run off of, you know, not to get too much into in the pricing and sales, but how is Yale's model structured, you know, because you have physical hardware and implementation that goes into that. But do you guys run off of a SaaS model plus, you know, just fees for implementation of the hardware? Or yeah, it's, it's a,
0: it's a hardware enabled SaaS model. Think about it that way. Okay. Increasingly as we're doing, you know, more and more big expansion deals with customers, more customers are choosing to capitalize the entire thing for multiple years at a time, which that's great for us. We like that, mm-hmm. and you know we've, we're finding particularly you know, both large and small EMPs like the ongoing OpEx that SaaS, you know, monthly or quarterly or annual SaaS fees represent. And so, customers are increasingly asking us to capitalize the entire thing and just pay for you know, hardware plus one year or hard year plus hardware plus multiple years all at once. Got gotcha. you.
2: How is that logistics-wise for you guys having to install that equipment on all of these, you know, different assets across the United States? Is it, you know, do you have teams based in all the major plays or how do you guys handle this logistically?
0: So we've got a network of partners that handles most of our okay. installation work. Okay. You know, our, our aspiration as a business is not to be in the e field installation game. Mm-hmm. There's lots of folks who are great at that requires a field footprint and presence. And we want to be focused on what we do best, which is these unique software-enabled devices, along with all the comms and software AI that flow from that. And so some of our customers choose to install themselves and we do a rather quick training. We can we can deploy and install in in 20 minutes or less uh, and go live with comms in 20 minutes or less. Okay. Which compared to traditional automation is night and day. So traditional automation, it's usually a day installation process or two days to get that system wired in and and up and running with power then it's another day or two to get comms going well we changed that dramatically and you can go live with with 20 minutes so the installation is so much easier and so we just kicked off a pilot what last week in eagleford with Mm -hmm. a a rather large north american onshore player okay and we did 75 units in three days wow so that's insane
1: How do you guys how do you guys solve the comms issue with obviously most wells are in complete remote locations? I don't have cell phone reception for about a 45 minute radius of where our wells are at.
0: Right, exactly. And so traditionally EMPs have built their own comms and become comms companies. And you know, they're maybe not the best comms companies in some cases. And it's expensive to build all that infrastructure. So it's also again back to traditional automation. It's tough to make that business case work, except in your 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 highest value wells. So we've got satellite or LTE. Or Wi-Fi, if a customer has Wi-Fi, or or IP radio-based capabilities built into our hardware. And so if the customer does happen to have comms we can piggyback on top of, great. But if they don't, which is more often the case than not, particularly for for the vertical wells, for the new horizontal wells where folks are focused on their growth assets, it's more often we'll see comms and we'll have that conversation about Mm -hmm. piggybacking on customer comms. But more often than not, I mean, you're exactly right. There is limited comms at best in most of these, these assets. And so that's where we're doing some very unique things with low bandwidth comms baked into our hardware where we can go live with comms in literally 20 minutes through that installation process. And it's a quick go to the app and you're you're live with data flowing. And so satellite's sort of been our, our default backhauling solution where we know that we can get comms anywhere in the entire world. We can go to Antarctica, we can go to we're live in Chile, for instance, we're live in Egypt. We're about to go live in a number of other international countries here over the next couple months here. And We can go live anywhere without problems. I have to deal with, you know, is my LTE or my cell tower nearby? We walk away from that game of satellite. But satellite costs more. And so where LTE is available, we're working with LTE, we can deliver higher resolution data for a bit more of attractive price. But, uh, you know, where we have higher bandwidth comms like Wi-Fi from customers, that's great because we can move a lot more data into the customer system
2: and deliver more from from an analytics perspective. I think that, you know, We've seen that issue with our wells where we have limited communications, and it makes sense. You know, you go out to a, a Pioneer Natural Resources or Apache that has Wi-Fi-enabled communications out. You know, they'll have satellites out on their tame batteries, wherever it may be. And that's all. I always think about these technologies, they can be deployed for those big operators. But, you know, what about the smaller private operators that don't have those communication the the infrastructure in place for it. So I think we're actually starting to kind of get over that that barrier where we have the 4G LTE solutions now. So it's becoming less of a bottleneck. But I mean, even, you know, three, four years ago, it was a lot bigger of a problem than it is now. So what are you guys kind of seeing in the market? You know, you said that the... Obviously, the value prop- proposition makes a lot of sense. The economics make a lot of sense. You said it's more of a cultural, just kind of accepting a new way of doing something. Are you guys seeing any adoption from one sector of the EMPs? Is it, is it big independents that are kind of adopting it more? Is it you know, mid-sized private equity-backed operators? Is it small guys? Have you seen kind of anything in particular from any one of those? So it's a mix across the board. I mean, we're
0: working with you know, really large majors, a couple of whom we've gone full commercial, full field with. As well as, you know, very small operators with a couple hundred wells who we've gone full field with, some of whom are private equity backed. You know, the challenge with the private equity backed segment is a lot of them are focused on proving up acreage, you know, doing some DNC, proving up IPs. They're not in it for the long haul to mm-hmm. operate and, you know, kind of run a, a proper production operation. And so for those guys who are pursuing that strategy, they don't really care that much about their production operations. Yeah. They're just looking to prove up their their IPs. Yeah. And so those guys aren't great targets for us. But for folks increasingly that path to exit of proving up acreage and, you know, optimizing IPs and flipping isn't, you know, the the most available path like it was three, four, five, six years ago. So increasingly folks are, I think, coming to the realization they've got to be a low cost producer, mm-hmm. build a little bit of scale in that operation and then, you know, their neighbors will, will acquire them over time. And so for those folks who who are approaching it that way, we're a great solution for those guys. Otherwise they've got to build an in house automation team, which is a whole bunch of bodies and a whole bunch of burn. Mm-hmm. We can do it with a lot less from an automation team perspective to deliver a phenomenal solution that's well beyond what any EMP has built to date, or you know, a, a small EMP in particular couldn't build.
1: The numbers seem to make, I mean, almost too much sense. So, what what do you guys see on the on the objections? Like, what is the most common? Like, no, we're, this is going to save us too much money. No, this is going to be too optimal. <laughs> well,
0: I, I think that you guys are probably seeing this little cartoon
1: of it's like it's a New Yorker cartoon of a couple stone men.
0: You know, moving some rocks in the, in the background there's a couple of guys who have you know come up with a cart with a wheel mm-hmm. moving the rocks that way and the you know the little line is you know we're too busy, too to, busy. to think about yeah. this, this <laughs> new crazy one. stuff yeah. right yeah and i think that's the perfectly appropriate kind of message which is we're so busy with manual stuff like we could never we can't even take on your projects right now yeah um <laughs> So that's that's a big part of it, right? For sure. Getting folks mindshare and prioritization to, to do new stuff. But it also takes leadership. I mean, we talk a lot about it takes someone in the middle and towards the top who's committed to driving change, and that doesn't say that doesn't mean just saying new technology is cool, let's do some cool projects. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, a commitment to communicating or over-communicating with your team and having the discipline as an organization to say, guys, we're doing this because this makes sense for the business. It's going to require all of us to change how we do our day-to-day operation, but this is the right thing for the business. And if you're not on board, then sorry, you should maybe find somewhere else to work. Mm -hmm. And so it does take a little bit of that change and that leadership. And so that's that's a big part of it.
1: I think that the challenge becomes, I mean, thinking obviously with us being operators now, but thinking towards the future as we grow and as we scale and the amount of exposure that we have to the newest technologies in this space, it's almost like, I think of it kind of like in a, in a software development sprint kind of thing. Like how often do you go back to the drawing board and say, we need to completely redo all of this because some new technology is there versus focused on what we know would get us from zero to a hundred with existing technologies. Like you, do you get what I'm saying? to like where you're always kind of going back and like re- refactoring and, yeah. and like you, you get caught up in this hamster wheel of always putting in new technology, but you always feel like it can make such a huge change so maybe
0: there's, there's a balance there right yeah
1: there's you know i've
0: got to run day operations and run it well and execute well versus how do i add improvements and you really do need a couple people who are focused on how do i drive those improvements through my my process yeah and not many peace, you know have the the wherewithal at all times you got to get the right combination of people who's you know ready to drive that change and that's why i do think you know, people like us, there's plenty of other companies like us doing cool things out there in the space that you guys are talking to lots of them, right? But without the the pressure that 2014 and oil prices crashing and a lot more young people stepping up as older folks kind of took packages and left industry, uh, that change, that crew change that, you know, has happened largely now was really a necessary part of the equation to bring a new set of openness to new technologies that can enable better processes, that can enable a better lower cost operating model. That's been kind of one of the fundamentals. I don't think we could have done what we're doing today five to seven years ago Mm -hmm.
2: because the the, the openness to change was not there. Yeah. I think we've heard those exact same words on the last five episodes. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but what's actually cool that Jake and I were talking about the other day is that. You know, we used to kind of think that we were in this little bubble, like, oh, you know, the industry is so resistant to change. And you start thinking that you're the one battling these problems by yourselves. But we've seen it more and more from every startup and technology that comes on our podcast. Everyone says the same exact thing. And it, so it's you know kind of nice to know, like, OK, this is an industry-wide problem that everybody's dealing with. But everyone has said the same exact thing, that the commodity prices being in a downturn and the great crude change is really kind of – it's been the perfect storm for new technologies to start – kind of penetrating the market so I think like you said
1: it was kind of a breeding ground for innovation i think a lot of the operators realized that they need to become more low-cost operators instead of maybe always drilling a new well is not the most economical but
2: yep. a lot of decision. it a lot of it comes down alex touched base on this a lot of it comes down to the emp's strategy and and what their yep. end game is you know not every private equity backed operator is in growth mode they're just looking to prove prove up a reservoir and, and flip that asset. But then you start to think, I, like, I think about this all the time. I'm like, well, if you were to utilize new technology and you had that deployed on your asset, that increased the value of that asset in my mind. So shouldn't that drive a higher valuation price for your asset? But, you know, it's a, a topic for another We've time. But have tried
0: making that same
2: case as well. <laughs> okay. So you, you tried making that case and yeah. you say it like it hasn't worked out too well for you, but- A few I, I folks, it. it's, it's piqued their interest. Mm-hmm.
0: But look, if they're if they're focused on a particular strategy and operating model, that's what they're going to focus on.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, it is hard too because you know you, you think about it. You've got the strategy, the operating team, the management team knows that if they just keep doing things the way that they're they're going to do it. You know, they can provide that that multiple return that they're looking for or the IRR that they're desired. So they're they're not really incentivized to deploy new technology because it doesn't really benefit them. So you know, it is. It is kind of a hard case to make for some teams like that, but everyone's situation is different. And, you know, when you get on with some of the bigger operators that are looking for that growth and, you know, not just the growth, but also looking to make their current assets more efficient. I think that's kind of the sweet spot of the EMPs that you'll Mm -hmm. you'll be looking for as a tech startup. Absolutely. So kind of going a little bit further back in
1: our conversation, we we had always talked about that, like, you know, we, we want to do all this stuff. And then maybe eventually we, we'd want to be VCs, right? And then I think we kind of had this realization that perhaps as operators, like as, you know, as entrepreneurs, we just have a little bit too much empathy to where we necessarily wouldn't be the greatest VCs and possibly make emotional bad decisions. Do you think that operators make good VCs or is that too much of a blanket statement? Uh, it, I think kind of-
0: mo- if you look at all the big investors out there, most of them have been successful entrepreneurs and operators, before they've transitioned into be a venture capitalist and part of that's simply financial mm-hmm. and to be a VC you have to put your own capital into it as the GP mm-hmm. and so most of them you know they they put a bu- they make a bunch of money they say hey I'm really I seem to be pretty good at this maybe I'll be pretty good at judging some of these companies and picking the right bets because I've been in those shoes before and you know transition from operator and successful entrepreneur into venture capitalist my viewpoint always was that I'd much rather take money from a venture capitalist who had experience as an operator, could understand the problems that I, as an entrepreneur, was going through. They could sympathize, right? Yeah. Someone who came more from a finance background and migrated into venture. I always, I always struggle with that, with that profile or persona of, of venture, because I, I just don't think they have ever really worked
2: through those challenges that being an entrepreneur presents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. I mean, you've seen here in the last, I don't know, two months or so, a few different accelerators pop up in the oil and gas tech space. And Jake and I have been talking about this for the past couple of years. You know, like, hey, we have the, the connections to the capital. We have a lot of experience in this space. We could start up an accelerator. But at the same time, I think that we kind of step back and realize that, hey, this isn't really what we want to be doing right now. The accelerator is
0: not actually a great business
2: model. Yeah, I, I agree. Let's, com- let's talk
1: about that.
0: Yeah. Why, why Combinator makes money because they, have, they dominate Silicon Valley early mm-hmm. stage incubator game.
1: For those who don't know, that's kind of like the top tier, tier one accelerator kind of in the, mm-hmm. in the VC game. Right.
0: So they dominate Silicon Valley in the consumer tech space, right? They're it. You've got to go through accommodator effectively, right? But their game is the fun that sits on top of that incubator because they get right of first refusal on all the companies that go through their program. Now, in contrast, Techstars has, you know, they couldn't play the same game that you know, the, the economies of scale that Common has created by dominating consumer tech out of Silicon Valley from an incubator perspective, they couldn't compete there. comedy occupies that space already. So Techstars came up with their own unique kind of spin. And they've actually gone out there and, and put together industry or sort of thematic focused incubators, you know, starting with Boulder and then migrating. So we've got Techstars Energy now out of Norway. But the way that they make the business model more attractive is they actually bring industry players in to help fund the cost of that incubator. And so, in the case of TechStars, Equinor is a big sponsor and is paying some of that money. They've got a mobility-focused cluster out of Detroit, and they've got industry players, all the automotive players, as well as a lot of the Tier One auto parts folks and some other tech folks, are funding that incubator program. And so, they've got someone paying them to run this program, to create this cluster, to create technology and and build a, an ecosystem for them. And so, that's a an attractive business model, but an incubator on its own. Without something that's, that you're using that to drive, we'll either a fund it, yeah. or something, or having mm-hmm. someone pay for it, it Incubate in its own, as, as Serge found out, is not
2: really a great business model. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. That's why we backed away from it because when you start really getting into the weeds you're like this, doesn't seem as attractive as it is. Talking about Y Combinator, have you listened or read the book Angel by Jason Calacanis? I have not. It's a great book. I recommend everybody. It just came out a few months ago. The audiobook. Jason reads it himself. Jason's one of the most well-known angel investors invested in Uber and Robin hood and some other big startup companies. And he's talking about how Y Combinator banned him for a few months from investing in any of their companies or talking to any of them. Well, why did so, he get banned? Well, because <laughs> he's kind of a brash guy. He's from the Bronx and he said that Y Combinator used to put out six startups a year. And I, I think it's over a hundred now a year. And he said a lot of them are shit. And they have, <laughs> they, they come to him and believe that they're owed something because they went to Y Combinator and he kind of lets them, lets them have it, you know, tells I them think, the truth. I, and, I've
1: heard on his start on his, uh, his podcast was it this week in startups. He's been doing it for like 10 years. He said a number of times that whenever a Y Combinator startup comes to him, you have to like wash the, the Y Combinator off of yeah. them.
0: Yeah. But, that, but I think that's probably symptomatic of the broader Silicon Valley era. Yes. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot of that going on in Silicon Valley. You know the the whole tech ecosystem out there is its own very unique world. and in consumer tech, I, I believe at least they'll always be the dominant player here going forward. You know, mm-hmm. we've got, you know China is a whole different story, but part of my viewpoint of the world is that as all these technologies that Silicon Valley you know, to their credit has pioneered, all the new data architectures that you know has is feeding all this new data science and AI stuff, that technology is now making its way into industries like oil and gas, other industrial things, heavy industries, or any other kind of more BDB enterprises. And in those selling it to those businesses and building product for those industries requires much more customer intimacy Mm -hmm. than you can get by just being in your bubble in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And so I do believe that that combined with the fact that Silicon Valley, New York city, all the tier one cities out there across the U S are just too damn expensive for folks to live in anymore. You're seeing a migration of talent, a dispersion of that talent from the core kind of kind of developed and matured that talent to other tier two, tier three cities, as well as getting closer to the
2: customers they serve to build product to bring that technology into other industries. Yeah, businesses. and there's a huge exodus from Silicon Valley to Austin. I mean, mm-hmm. you're seeing that real time just in the last couple of years. You It kind of brought up a question I wanted to ask you. Do you think oil and gas data problems or any digital tech, do you think that the majority of them are going to come from solutions from people within? This, I, was, I was literally about to ask the same yeah, thing. Yeah, within... Oil and gas ecosystem, or is it going to come from Silicon Valley based companies that set out to solve oil and gas problems? I think a lot of the infrastructure type stuff, like all the cloud stuff, is going to come from the big tech players, right? Mm -hmm.
0: Google, Microsoft, Amazon, they're going to dominate the infrastructure. They've got scale, they've already got massive businesses. But as we get closer to the use cases and the problems, you know, particularly in the field, I do think that it's going to be players from close to home who have experience in depth in industry mm-hmm. and understand not just that particular use case, but also the people in the culture yep. who are going to be the most successful You know, in our world in particular in building data models. It is not just about bringing great data science to the table. That's absolutely part of the battle, but understanding the problems that you're solving, the, the industrial systems that we're working with, and understanding the physics of how those systems operate and feature engineering your data models based on the physics of that system is how we kind of put the, the secret sauce together, the deep integration of those two disciplines together, which traditionally have operated in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. That's really critical to, to really most effectively solve these problems. And while a lot of EMPs are building in-house data science teams, what we find from talking to most of these teams is that oftentimes these data science teams sort of exist, exist in a vacuum. And yeah. aren't really able to get hand in hand working with the drilling engineers, the production engineers, whatever the engineers,
2: right? And so it's still even harder for the EMPs to do this in house. Yeah, they're all siloed internally. You know, all the all the divisions within the E M P, none of them are able to communicate with each other and really work in unison. So it, you know, you don't have yeah. that mesh.
1: From what I hear, that it's like these, yeah, you know, like you said, these siloed little sandboxes where a whole bunch of data scientists get together and just play with things, and you never really know if they're actually accomplish anything and actually meeting any. Right. Business awesome objectives we've with heard, technology.
0: We've heard plenty of stories from, you know, folks at EMPs who you know they'll they'll bitch about their data science teams. Like the guy spent six months building this model and he came to me with these results. And it's like, thanks. You've literally just told me things that are like fundamentals about operating well or operating <laughs> whatever piece of equipment. Like, thanks guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. Great. <laughs>
2: Well, I agree with you 100%. I think the oil and gas, the intricacies of the industry are too complicated to be solved. You know, you'll have your, your your big tech companies that come in and solve some of the big cloud and data issues, but really the the problems within the industry the that are in the weeds, those are going to be solved from people that have seen them firsthand, I believe, and are able to kind of bridge that gap between the technology and the oil and gas operations because, you know, Google always comes to my mind. Like Google's just arrogance that they're gonna come solve all of oil and gas's data problems rubs me the wrong way. But <laughs> uh, Google's making a big play out there, trying to build themselves a cloud position and
0: build an IoT position. And yep. you know, right now they're they've got a whole bunch of consulting projects running to figure out what is their angle. Energy, yeah, what's their play? That they can build some scalable use cases, mm-hmm. you know, using their advantage out there, which is you know probably the most advanced AI capabilities of any tech company. Yeah. So they're they're trying to figure it out. Yep. And then attempt to build more of a compelling business there to you know capture share from Microsoft and, and AWS. Yep. In if anyone sense.
2: knows anyone at Google, we'd love to chat. Yeah, for sure. Love to have them on the show. Okay. But it's funny, even just from a cultural perspective, mm-hmm. we're working with a. Uh, really big startup company out of Silicon Valley. And they want to implement their technology in West Texas and get more market share of the oil and gas trucking industry. And, you know, they fly down here to meet me and they show up in their Patagonia vest. And, you know, I, I tell them, I'm like, look, I can't take you out to Midland, Texas, looking like that, they'll tear you apart. You know, it's just a, it's a cultural thing too. So it's not just figuring out the the solutions to the problems, but it's well, also. Well,
0: it's interesting in the back of that story, Barbara Berger,
2: who's the president of Chevron
0: Technology Ventures, about a year ago, she told me a funny story. She said, you know, she was talking to my brother and I, but she said, guys, maybe you wouldn't believe how many Silicon Valley tech companies, like data science companies have been coming to us at, at CTV and they show up, you know, they buy their boots at the airport and they show up <laughs> and they say, look, it's actually better that we don't know anything about your UK use cases in your domain because we can look at your data with fresh eyes. <laughs> and so they actually you know, kind of view it as a badge of honor yeah. that they actually really have no idea, but they're just such smart data scientists that don't worry, you stupid oil and gas guys, <laughs> we'll figure your problems out for you. And she was rather taken aback and I'm blown away and it will it will upset me, you know, someone who's been interested now for 12 years, it will upset me if, you know, outsiders like Google come in and take all the opportunities. Yeah. I think it would. Be a disservice to all of us who spent, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of our of our lives working in, in the industry. For sure, to not be the one driving the change and you know creating these great opportunities. Yeah, I mean that,
2: that was really kind of an mo of us putting on this show and all the content that we do is that we wanted to shine a light on what was happening within oil and gas technology because there is so much happening, you know, here in Houston and Austin, DFW, Denver, and you know Jake and I really want all the industry solutions to come from within the industry and you know the arrogance of other tech companies that want to come in and solve. It just kind of rubs me the wrong way. So I really don't kind of want to propel the industry forward and kind of start building out that infrastructure. And I mean, that's why we office here at the Canon. The Canon is doing a great job doing that. The city of Houston's taking some initiative to put infrastructure in place for tech startups. So, you know, kind of starting to drift that way a little bit.
1: I mean, if you don't intrinsically understand the business use case for the problems that you're solving, how can you even build a data model around that effectively?
2: I would agree with you. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple.
1: I've told this story a million times whenever we were doing GDS where first off, I didn't know anything about oil and gas. But the first thing that I did, outside of buying a significant amount of textbooks over petroleum (laughs) engineering, geology, production accounting, and everything else, was I sat down with our first customer. I sat down with all the employees and I learned their jobs for extended periods of time with each department because we were trying to build something that was tried to in theory was supposed to be like more end to end. And that was like the best exercise ever, which obviously we've parlayed into now being operators ourselves. Yeah. So,
2: well, Alex, before we wrap up this episode, I always ask people, this would be interesting to get your take because you're a multiple time entrepreneur. Do you have any advice for aspiring entrepreneurs or founders, especially in the oil and gas tech space that really kind of sticks out to you from your journey? I mean, I just, I would say get ready to work
0: hard. It Mm -hmm. takes drive. It takes it's a emotional journey. It's very different being, you know, an employee of someone else's company. Yeah. Ups and downs of your day-to-day work, no problem. But you know, be prepared for the lonely journey that is being an entrepreneur. But, you know, for me, the secret of success and entrepreneurship, yes, you gotta be smart and, you know, seize opportunities, but hard work is really is the fundamental. Work work harder than everyone else
2: out there. And be intimate with your customers. Listen to your customers. I couldn't agree with you more. There's like this big movement online. Like, every I don't know if you know Gary Vaynerchuk or not, but everybody's attacking Gary Vaynerchuk. So, like, all oh, this hard work, motivation bullshit is, you know, it's not the way. It's about working smart and using leverage. And I'm like, look. It always comes down to hard work. I believe that the only variable that you can control is how hard you're working and the amount of effort that you're putting in. So, as long as that you're working harder than the guy next to you.
0: Yeah. And there's a, you can make the case that, you know, you want to work smarter rather than harder. And, you know, blunt force isn't always the most effective mm-hmm. way. But, but while I agree, I mean, we built our previous company because we worked 80, 100 hour weeks for, for, you know, years on end. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and in the professional services consulting game, it's just an hours heavy, thing and you know i worked 117 hours my one of my one week which is the most i ever worked it was awful yeah but you know i learned a lot from it you learn how you how, how far you can push your boundaries and i think there's value to that
2: yep, yep. for sure i think i'm just kind of numb to it because mm, oil filled, you know i'm on a frack job for 110 hours a week and not making that much money <laughs> so <laughs> i think i just kind of got numb to the the pain of working 100 hours a week so if people want to find you after this podcast and go on Ambient's website what's y'all's website it's just ambient.com
0: a m-b-y-i-n-t. Okay, awesome. Um, you can find you know both Chris and I on LinkedIn. Pretty okay. easy to find us.
2: Okay. What's y'all's last names again so the people know? It's a robot, Robart, R-O-B-A-R-T. Right. Awesome. So find them on LinkedIn if you guys have any questions. If you're an operator that's interested in their technology, reach out to the them either on LinkedIn or on their website. I'm sure they'll get you guys taken care of. Yeah. Alex, appreciate you coming on, man. Thanks, gentlemen. I appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. Go, 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 go.